This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, and others with topics that will pique your curiosity. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Robin D'Angelo about her eye-opening book titled White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. In this in-depth exploration, Dr. D'Angelo examines how white fragility develops, how it protects racial inequality, and what we can do to engage more constructively. Dr. Robin D'Angelo is an academic, lecturer, and author and has been a consultant and trainer on issues of racial and social justice for more than 20 years. She formerly served as tenured professor of multicultural education at Westfield State University. Dr. Robin D'Angelo, welcome to Books, Beats, and Beyond. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So just to get a groundwork and help people understand you, um, we I always like to ask, what is it about your life experiences that compelled you to do the work that you do? I think there are two key pieces. And one is I grew up, I'm white, um, and I grew up in poverty, uh, Catholic, female, and from a really early age had a very acute sense of uh, injustice and oppression, a deep sense of internalized shame about being poor. Uh, We had periods of homelessness and foster care and this kind of thing. And so I I could very easily and with great uh, passion tell you about what I had suffered. But I never in my life had reflected on my advantage or my privilege. I had never considered how being white actually helped me navigate poverty uh, and uh, sexism. And for me, that happened when I applied for a job as a diversity trainer, which I was not qualified for in any way. Um, But I just thought, oh, this is just about being open-minded. And I was really in for the most profound learning of my life on every level. And the first one was that I was working side by side with people of color who were challenging the way I saw the world and my place in it. Uh, I would not have even been able to tell you I had a racial worldview before that happened. Um, And part of being white is that I could be that far in life, right, a full, professional, educated adult, and never have my racial worldview challenged. And then the second piece, I was was like a fish being taken out of water. (laughs) And the second piece was going into the workplace and trying to lead primarily white groups of people in discussions of race and the resistance and the hostility and the denial was unbelievable to me. Hmm. Uh, And I had enough of my own, you know, I mean, I was socialized to be white too. I could understand those, uh, those sentiments and those narratives, but I had, had enough um, of my own, you know, being taken out of water that I could step back from it a little bit. And so just years and years of trying to talk to white people about race. Um, so I guess it's kind of the two parts, being able to draw from the, my own experience of oppression, but not to exempt myself. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of white people use, you know, areas of our life where we experience oppression as a, as a way to exempt ourselves from the reality of white advantage. Mm. 
So anyway, those two pieces, I think, are what led me to where I am today. Wow. And then, and Jen, the title, like, what, <laughs> is, what is white fragility? I mean, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that it's so recognizable, right? Like, you're asking what it is. And yet, on some level, there's kind of, I really believe I have just put language to something that most people recognize. Yeah. Um, how easily white people erupt in defensiveness when our racial positions, advantages, uh, our perspectives are challenged. So it just kind of came out of my mouth one day in frustration, um, oh, this white fragility. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's meant to capture two key pieces, right? So, so white people, I believe, overall, Oh, and this is one of the first things that will trigger white fragility, the fact that I'm generalizing about white people. Right. <laughs> I was about you to ask like you, what are the what are some of the triggers, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, part of being white is you get to be an individual. Mm. Um, I mean, I understood that somebody had race, but not me. Mm. And if we were discussing race, we'd be discussing your race, not mine, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we... We're relentlessly reinforced uh, in an unracialized identity, um, and we get to be individuals, and, you know, not everybody does, right? Mm. I'm just Robin, the teacher, you're going to be the black teacher, right? <laughs> yeah. Always going to tag what is different from the norm, but we're not going to tag the norm. Right. Right. So... We're fragile in that it does not take much at all. For many white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning will set us off. Mm. Uh, much less uh, that you could know anything about me just because I'm white, right? right. So we're fragile in that we can't, we can't hold much. Um, but it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's an incredibly effective way to get you to stop challenging me right. um, and to back off. And, and it works, right? Yeah. And I want to be really clear that I don't have to be intentionally doing that, right? I don't have to be sitting there thinking consciously, okay, let's see, how do I get him to stop challenging my white identity? <laughs> Um, but for me, that's not really as relevant as the impact of those responses. Right. So I think that white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying, to mm. be really frank. Mm. We make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about their experiences of us, you know, to talk to us about their experience with racism, that most of the time they don't. Right. So. I'm going to imagine that you put up with way more daily unconscious microaggressions from white people than you bother talking to us about. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> yeah, right? When why? Because you actually risk more punishment. Yeah. Right. Your experience is probably that it's not going to go well. I'm going to get defensive um, mm. and it's going to get worse for you. So you don't bother. Well, what a great way to have me not ever have my patterns or positions challenged. Right. So it's, it's a kind of everyday white racial control. Yeah. And especially why uh, a lot of people of color don't challenge it is because most of the time, the most of the time we're around people, uh, white people is more on the job than anything, you know, and yes. we don't want to sacrifice our job for that, you know? So, yeah. but, but you, you had a, you had a part in there and I think, people need to understand this. You talked about socialization yes. and the importance of that. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. It appears that most white people don't understand socialization. Uh, 
even this idea that we could all be unique individuals and there's absolutely nothing um, that you can say about a a collective um, indicates that we don't understand socialization, right? So what's the probably number one evidence that a white person gives for their lack of racism or their their belief that they lack any racism? Uh, I was taught to treat everyone the same. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard it countless times when racism up a white person will say that and there's a bubble over my head when i hear it and the first one is you you just cannot understand socialization if you think you treat everyone the same you Mm -hmm. don't you know i at a conscious level absolutely believe all people are equal i've dedicated my life to it but at a subconscious level no way i could believe that because relentlessly uh, across my life i've been given messages that all people aren't equal Mm -hmm. And those, those actually, those messages inform my responses much more than what I'm aware of. I mean, our research and implicit bias shows this, but because those um, messages conflict with my identity as a good person, I'm, I'm going to be in denial about it. Right. right? You, you bring up a great point right there, because sometimes when we see stuff on TV and we're like, wow, that was really racist what they did, someone's always commenting on that person saying that they're a good person like yes and in my head i'm like that doesn't matter but exactly. it, it boggles me um do you know why that happens like you yeah, yeah. well i certainly have my theory <laughs> oh racism is a highly adaptive system it's been going on since the beginning of this country it, mm-hmm. it, it has not let up yes there have been changes uh, but the uh, outcome of uh racial inequality is uh, consistent and that by some measures actually getting worse. So by every um, measure, every institution, there's racial inequality, right? right. Um, but post-civil rights, uh, the system of racism adapted by reducing racism to a very simple formula, right? A racist is always an individual, not a system, mm-hmm. who consciously doesn't like people based on race. It has to be conscious and intentionally seeks to be mean to them, must be intentional. So individual conscious intent. That definition exempts virtually all white people from the system we are in. Um, And I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness, right? A racist is obviously a mean, bad person. (laughs) And I'm not a mean, bad person. I would never want to hurt you by across race, and therefore I cannot be racist. Mm-hmm. And if you suggest that anything I've just said or done is indeed racially problematic, um, I'm going to hear that as a question to my very moral character, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm going to receive that feedback as you have just said I was a bad person. Mm-hmm. So this idea that nice people cannot be racist um, actually just functions beautifully to protect racism. And as long as we define it in that way, we're going to protect it. We need to understand that it's literally the water we're swimming in. It's embedded oh. across every institution, right? right? And none of us can be exempt from its forces. Right. It changes the question from if I'm a racist to how am I manifesting racism in my daily life? Right. Wow. Because in the book, you, you, um, I, um, when, when I say, when I say white supremacy, uh, most white people think of hate groups, like you said, or that openly proclaim, proclaim yes. white superiority. However, 
white supremacy pertains, like you said, to all white people. But when you apply it that way, it really unsettles white people. So I, I oh. just want to get from from a sociologist standpoint, talk yeah. about how do you define white supremacy, and then and then what would uh, happen if all white people acknowledge the pervasiveness and their complicity in white supremacy? Okay. Well, um, and I really want to clarify that while all people hold racial biases, you could have racial bias towards me because I'm white, right? Mm-hmm. You don't even know me, but assume that I'm probably clueless, which is actually a safe assumption for you to make. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you right? That's, you know, you don't know me and you right. just made that realization yeah. and that was nice and that hurt my feelings, etc. You know, that that's racial bias. Yeah. But when you back a group's collective bias, Mm. With legal authority and institutional control, the impact of that is transformed. When virtually everyone at the table is is a homogeneous group, mm-hmm. and they are in the position to write policies, and e- even if there's no ill intent, just by virtue of the homogeneity, they're going to set up systems and policies that advantage their experience. Yeah. We can. This is probably really easy to see with disabilities. Right. If everyone at the table, um, if none of us have a disability, we're going to design uh, buildings that exclude people with disabilities and we're not even uh, t- intentional about it, but we mm. just don't have any other perspective at the table. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really important to reserve some language to capture the profound difference in impact when, again, your group's bias is backed by uh, institutional control. So I reserve the term to talk about white people's racial bias um, but I would not call yours racism. Uh, and that, yeah. that right there upsets a lot of white people. Yeah, so yeah. my question back to them would be, why is that important to you? What is your investment in insisting that they're just as racist as we are? Wow, I mean, yeah. <laughs> first of all, that's a five-year-old argument, right? <laughs> he, he did it too. Right. But, you know, what, what, what would it mean for you to just grapple with the difference in impact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So then you had a second part of that I really wanted to answer. So what was your second part? Yeah. Of that so that it was like, um, uh, what would happen if white people acknowledge the pervasiveness and, and, and their complicity in white supremacy? Um, well, it would be incredibly powerful and important, but just acknowledging it uh, without a change in action is meaningless. Mm. So, I'll, I'll often um, hold a workshop and then we'll go around and so kind of what's one thing you're going to do different. And over and over and over, white people say, I'm going to keep reflecting about this. And and my response is, okay, and how will people of color know you've reflected on this? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, what, difference, <laughs> what difference is it going to make? I mean, you need to reflect on it, mm-hmm. but if that's all you're doing, um again, it's meaningless. Or if you're able to say, oh, I know I have white privilege and then just carry on doing everything you've ever done. But now you just acknowledge you have white privilege again. (laughs) Yeah. You need to actually be breaking with white solidarity. You need to be speaking up. You need to be getting racism on the table in your Mm -hmm. institution. You need to keep it on the table when everybody wants it off the table. Mm -hmm. Like it, it requires something of us. Um, but now let's imagine uh, that white people uh, not only acknowledged 
their complicity in racism, but but wanted to do something different. I actually think it would be revolutionary. Yeah, um, yeah. Could... But we can't get there from the current paradigm, right? As long as I think about racism as individual acts of meanness, right? I'm not going to think there's. I don't have anything I need to do because I'm not a mean person, right? And it's a beautiful way to protect the racist status quo. Right. I love how you talked about racism and and what it means and how it's black people really can't be racist because like you said, we might have racial bias, but we don't have the power to enforce that. So yeah. when you're online or you, you hear kids all the time around this time, when it's time to go back to school and college, affirmative action, they always say that's reverse racism. Dude, mm-hmm. that's not even a point, right? Like that doesn't, well, I would say there's no such thing. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's a really interesting qualifier, right? Oh, so is that's going in the wrong direction? Is it, if it's going in the correct direction, it's okay. <laughs> right, uh, right. Also, are you ups- as upset about uh, regular racism as this so-called reverse racism? <laughs> Generally not. Yeah. Generally, people who are upset about what they perceive as reverse racism are not, you know, anti-racists, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's no such thing. Yeah. Um, Remove it from your vocabulary. Uh, again, racism is a system right. uh, that is the bedrock and foundation of our society. And so if you truly care, get to work figuring out how its forces have shaped you. Yeah. Just what I would say to white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and try to change the way that you're you know, upholding those forces. And oh. inaction is a beautiful form of, ina- of action. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and I think I think you talk about how, you know, getting white people to acknowledge their advantage like you just did is only the first step. Right. Yes. And, and how even acknowledging and acknowledging their advantage can render, you know, like you said, it meaningless and can exempt, you know, uh, white people from further responsibility. Um, Have you ever been in a group? Right. It's some group and somebody goes, Oh, I know I'm dominating the conversation, and then they continue to dominate the conversation. Right. You're yes. just like, how about you stop dominating the conversation? What the <laughs> hell move was that that you just made? Like, it's okay if you keep taking up all the space as long as you know that you're doing it. Right. Right. right? Stop dominating. You don't need to tell me you're doing it. I already know you're doing it. Right. Stop doing it. <laughs> I, th- I think something else that you said um you say that the uh expectation that black people should r- teach white people about racism is another aspect of um uh racial innocence um that reinforces you know several problematic racial assumptions can you talk about that we're gonna stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back
remember I am a true descendant of people who were stolen and traded for all the riches but I can play the victim I'm told just to forget it while they dwell on 9-11 and celebrate independence but I'm supposed to clean them memory of all the lynching shit I cringe at the thought of giving my daughter weapons plus I see the name that on my family every time I write a check so how the fuck am I supposed to forget when we ain't safe in churches or even when we comply the ones paid to protect us I'm making sure that we die they say we kill ourselves we still cheat and we rob but some of y'all do the same when you supposed to be on the job and if you really care about the welfare of my people you make sure that the schools for all children were equal fair competition so they had to rip the game scared if we catch up then we do they ass the same no they deserve it but they ask what would Jesus do bet my bottom dollar he wouldn't be down with you he was the wrong shade you probably do him the same shoot him seven times while trying to give you his name right in front of his kids body them with the chrome label the threat when all he tried to do was get him home all I'm saying in the future minus our past can never exist y'all make sure your babies listen to this and wake him up You say that the uh, expectation that black people should teach white people about racism is another aspect of um, uh, racial innocence um, that reinforces, you know, several problematic racial assumptions. Can you talk about that? So white people uh, often position, we position ourselves as racially innocent, right? So we'll say things like, oh, I don't know anything about this. Or, mm. oh, I grew up on a small farm 40 miles from the nearest house, so I don't know anything <laughs> about this. You know, um, on that one, I, I would actually argue you are less sheltered than someone who grew up in a city. Mm. Um, because you were left to rely on the most problematic sources for your understanding of people of color, mm -hmm. right? You, if you grow up on a small, you're white and you grew up on a small rural farm, you know, black people exist. Yeah. Where did you get your information about them? <laughs> uh, what is your idea of the, where they live? Right. What do you think it's like where they live? And how do you know? Uh, were you encouraged to explore those spaces and find out? I bet you weren't. <laughs> I bet you were encouraged to avoid them. Um, so that, that was just a little, uh, digression there. No, um, no, it, it makes sense. <laughs> this idea that you have race and I don't, which is why, uh, in my workplace, we'll put you on the diversity committee, um, whether you have any interest in it, whether you have any skill in it, uh, but automatically we will assign the racial work to you. Mm. And because I'm a universal person who can speak for everybody and, you know, from no particular vantage point, <laughs> I'll cover everything else, right? <laughs> right. Um, 
so this this idea of racial innocence, you know, maybe give you an example or story that yeah. really brought it home. Uh, I went to a talk of it was a, a panel of white people who were active in anti-racist work talking about, you know, the challenges and the importance of white people being involved. And there was this one man on the panel, big, buff, kind of macho looking guy. And he said, you know, when it comes to racism, I'm like a child. I'm like a seven year old child. You know, mm. I'm, I'm new. I'm learning. And I, I was so moved by that. Right. I thought, oh, my God, I've never seen a big buff dude like that position himself as childlike. <laughs> um, it seems so humble and vulnerable to me. And so as we left, I, I was with a friend of mine who's a woman of color. And I said, wow, wasn't that amazing, you know, when so-and-so said this. And she just looked at me and she was actually furious. Oh. And she said, how do I hold a seven-year-old accountable? <laughs> right. He is not a child. He's a grown man. He's not innocent. It, it was just this like, whoa, right? Where yeah. it totally changed. And of course, you know, I know, I know what his intentions were, but it changed the way I understood, you know, that narrative. Um, and it's, we actually have a lot of a potential insight into what it means or how you come to be socialized into a sense of superiority. You know, we have a rich um, source of, of reflection and information that we can tap. But when we go to you to do all that heavy lifting, if you will, right, you know, you open your chest and you, you show me all the tender, you know, hurts and experiences and, I'll just sit back and receive that um, and then make a decision about what I believe and what I don't. That's a really unfair dynamic. Yes, very unfair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I can't do the work without being accountable to people of color, right? I I could not articulate what I can today without, you know, brilliant mentorship from people of color. Mm -hmm. So... So it has to be a kind of a twofold process. Um, but I also can't expect, you know, my coworker to to be in that position. You know, there are plenty of people of color who have put themselves in a teaching position who are willing to do it and hopefully are paid to do it. Right. But just turning to, you know, anybody and saying, OK, open your chest and show me so I can <laughs> learn is just not cool right and 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 i think was was awesome about reading your book is that you've learned to accept uh racial feedback on on things you do because you say that you know you still have racist tendencies and you know it's a continuum you'll never stop learning this right and and um to be able to accept that feedback from people of color i want to believe that other white people can do that as well so what what how can we make that happen? What do you think needs to happen for them to accept this feedback? Because without the feedback, it's going to be constantly closed. We won't share as much because we do not want that eruption, that fragility to happen. So, you know, um, a couple of things need to happen. And one of course is changing what we think racism is again, as long as I define it as the individual acts of meanness, I'm probably not going to be able to, Receive your feedback, mm. but if if I understand it as a system uh, that I could not help be shaped by, and that it, it I could not help but you know kind of exude the effect of, yeah, I actually see your willingness to take that risk, and it's a huge risk 
across a history of harm, Mm -hmm. right? I I will often ask a group, if I have a multiracial group, I'll ask the people of color, how often have you tried to give white people feedback on our inevitable and often unaware racism and had that go well for you? Not well at all. (laughs) Exactly. They rolled their eyes, never, uh, rarely. You know, (laughs) that right there, right? Yeah. so if you are willing to take that risk with me, it's an it's an incredible moment of trust. And what, we just have to understand that we have to understand what it takes. Yeah. Um, that if you're if I, you're my friend and you're not giving me that feedback, that should be a red flag to me. Exactly. That somewhere I have conveyed to you that I can't hear it. Right. And I bet the relationship is nowhere near as authentic as I think it is. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean. Right? You must have white friends who you, you only go so far with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You want to lunch with them, but you're not going to do, you know, share the deeper stuff because, you know, they can't handle it. Right. I, I, I think most of the time when, when this kind of comes out um, is <laughs> you kind of talked about it in, in your book a little bit, too. Um, more around the um, chapter around uh, anti-blackness, right? Yeah. And... Um, you know, you, you talk about uh, what you believe is why white people fundamentally hate blackness because uh, blackness is a constant reminder about something to white people. What is that reminder? Yeah, um, I, I'll just be really blunt. I think I think that the the collective, the white collective, does fundamentally hate blackness, which the black collective. I think it reminds us of a couple of things. One, um, the profound and violent history of oppression that we have never come to terms with. Mm. Uh, and I don't mean that just the past and the present, right? I right. think there's a, it's almost a moral trauma mm. we cannot face for what it would mean about ourselves. And so we project our own sins onto the black body. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Yeah. About you know, what do we say about black people? Lazy, yeah. uh, not intelligent, criminal? Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. Yeah. What's the actual direction of organized, freaking state-sanctioned crime exactly. that white people have perpetrated towards black people, from enslavement to Jim Crow to subprime mortgages to the school-to-prison pipeline to mass incarceration to biased uh, policing practices. I, I could go, just go on, on and, and on. on. Yeah. So it, it it's a perversion mm-hmm. of you know the actual direction of violence and harm, and and so we really kind of can't look at it. And there's an investment in superiority, mm. um, and um, I actually think white white people need black people in order to be superior because mm. whiteness has no meaning without blackness. Mm. And I can't be better than you without you. Right. Um, right. And, you know, white superiority is very hard for white people to own. Uh, and in my presentations, I, I try to make it really, really undeniable and clear. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. From the time I opened my eyes, basically, um, I have been given messages uh, of white superiority. Mm. Uh, no child misses the message. And the research shows that by age three to four, all children who grow up here understand it's better to be white. Oh, wow. You knew by 
three. You knew well, it was yeah, we it was you knew very young. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I knew very young too, right? Now I suppress that. Um but those messages um circulate relentlessly, right? They're not dependent on one person or one moment. Um, and so I kind of overwhelm white people with images of white as the human ideal uh, that are very recognizable. And so if, if from the time I've opened my eyes, the message is I'm superior. I mean, that, there's a, a, almost not even a place outside of that that I can comprehend. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and it's a kind of fragile construct, too. Right. Mm-hmm. It has to be maintained. You know, these are not fixed power lines. They're they're actively maintained. Right. Um, and so it's threatening to have that questioned. It's threatening to have to compete with you mm-hmm. uh, in college. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's threatening. Um, I mean, the number one group that blocks uh, efforts for educational equity are white middle class parents. Mm. Testing and tracking yeah. middle class and upper class white children. What's considered a good school, bad school. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I don't care if you have an inferior education, but by God, my my child's not going to. Mm-hmm. In fact, I need you to have an inferior education so that my child can have a superior education. <laughs> right, right. I mean, honestly, it's not that far below the surface. Yeah. And I think um, I think what's interesting is, like you said, as soon as you open your eyes, uh, from my perspective, everything I look at from the different channels to advertisements, it's everywhere. And yeah. like you said, it's, I, I, I don't know, but, but it, I, I don't think white people can be that oblivious to it that they see themselves everywhere. But you said it could be because they're so, so conditioned to that. But, but what I think is what was fascinating also is this is one part in your book where I was like, hell yes. Right. You said that, and I quote, Anti-blackness is a complex and confusing stew of resentment and benevolence, for we also use blacks to feel warm-hearted and noble. I was like, oh, my God. I could see this, like, when I watch movies. Like, why? I It really... I can go to theater and with, a, with, a, with, a, with a white friend or associate, and we go see, I don't know, any kind of movie where the teacher's white and they're in the quote urban area and they're helping the kids out like i hate those movies <laughs> some of my uh friends and associates like that was a great movie i'm like mm, really. yeah i always tell white people if you go to a movie about race and you love it you should immediately get scared <laughs> it's like uh-oh red flag why did i love that movie right. and usually it's because those movies reinforce the good whites and the bad whites oh. and we identify with the good whites right Rather than those mean racist whites, you know, Kevin Costner breaking down the colored only bathroom sign. We love that. <laughs> yeah. um, even though that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it happened in the movie, but not right. in life. Um, and so it reinforces that sense of, yeah, of goodness and benevolence. And we separate ourselves from, you know, the bad individual whites. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we feel warm hearted and we save, you know, I mean, I, I think that I use the blind side. Um, I, I've certainly provided analysis of the blind side. I might not have in this book. Um, but when we save black people, we only save the, the good deserving black people. <laughs> the one, you know, there's one worth saving, but only one. Mm. 
Right. I mean, The Blind Side is one of the most egregiously racist films. It really is. Right. Where, you know, every single character that's black in that film is negative, except Michael Orr. Right. Right. He's the only one worth saving. And he's big and he's black. And that's like uh, and uh, and he's nice. So it's almost like an oxymoron subconsciously within the white world. He's black, (laughs) but he's portrayed as incredibly childlike. Yes. And so uh, he's he's mute during most of the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he stands there. And I have an image I show where he's just standing there with his arms limp at his side. Mm. And this little boy, white boy, who's trying to teach him how to play football, yeah, right. you know, is standing up above him with a, um, yeah. you know, pen and paper in his hand, you know, actively teaching this passive, you know, man. <laughs> how to play football it's pretty intense and, and let's say i know you you have white friends and when they went to see that they thought that was good right there was they didn't have oh any God. problems so beloved oh, oh you i make oh, white people in my presentations when i critique the blind side um some people get really angry with me wow and for a couple of reasons one it's this kind of ridiculous like oh you're saying i'm racist because i like the movie hmm. you know don't think about it like that just think about it like this oh my goodness i didn't even notice those right. messages i have some work to do hmm. i want to notice those messages thank you for helping me and now i'm going to pay better attention so that i'm not as affected by them right huh, yeah but instead it's like how dare you you're saying i'm racist you're trying to ruin that movie for me um yeah it, it's i mean frustrating. White, white fragility is the sub what it triggers in the subconscious is just amazing it's just yeah. amazing that it just sparks this anger instead of yeah. like let's say i i always try to tell people about racism that aren't black that think about sexism right you know all about that right think about all those dynamics now try to apply that to racism like but it doesn't it doesn't help it's it's interesting yeah you know it's a it's a weaponized defensiveness and Mm. weaponized tears and weaponized hurt feelings i am often just taken aback at how mean white people are on this topic Mm -hmm. i mean we are so pissy and defensive and mean Mm -hmm. and you know i think we should just ask ourselves why so angry right yeah if you called me a murderer i'd be just like huh yeah whatever (laughs) right right because i never murdered anybody right right Uh, so if you really are, you know, why why not be more relaxed if you really, you know, don't yeah. think so. And right? you brought, There's something else going on here. You brought up a really good point in your book. And oh. you said, uh, you talked about how discussing racism with white people challenges the ideologies of individualism and meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's very powerful right there, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if you really if you really take this up, um, you have to acknowledge that, yes, I worked hard, and yes, I faced barriers, but not facing this barrier, which is huge and deep, very much helped me navigate the barriers I do face, right? I, I grew up poor, but you know I'm also white, and so I'm not poor today, and you would never know that I grew up poor. Being white 
absolutely helped me once I got to college, you know, all of that. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't struggle, but you don't struggle with this. And someone else struggling with this is helping you, you know, it's helping your hard work pay off. And that's hard to hear sometimes because when they say, I came up this way, no one handed me anything, everything, I had to work for everything. (laughs) That right there is one of the biggest barriers I've always heard about. Yeah, you know, I really don't know how uh, a white person can say it's the same thing to be poor and white as it is to be poor and black. Come on. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that doesn't really um, throw me off because I did grow up poor and white. And and so I can speak back to it. And I actually, if you have any listeners who want kind of a deeper analysis, I wrote an article called My Class Didn't Trump My Race. Mm. Using oppression to face privilege, and I kind of talk about that intersection and um, how I came to knew that I, to know that while I might be at the bottom, uh, always there was somebody below me. Is it? Am I, is this possible to link this in the show notes? Yeah. If you uh, if you go to my, uh, did you just ask me if, I, if yeah. there was a link? Yeah. yeah. If I can link it in my show notes, is that okay? To, absolutely and Perfect. just make, make a live link and the and the pdf will pop up it's actually on my website under publications oh, perfect. you can find it there and then you can grab the link and if you have any trouble tell me and i'll send you a copy perfect and, uh, and i i think i think when you talk about racism you, you really put it on the table you talk about white supremacy and that 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 white people are imbued in these waters of white supremacy regardless if they don't think they are or not there there is some benefit to them in that regards but i think there was one form of racism that i think is like the most like noxious and insidious form of racism is something called adverse racism <laughs> and i think after you explain it i think the audience will understand how dangerous it is too we'll be right back You look at me and see a killer that can terrify your world Or a husband and a father raising two beautiful girls It's easy to see the former when it's all that you see When you turn on the tube and see someone like me Whether male or female, they give us all a place And a part to act out in they monstrous little play But I've had it up to there, I ain't standing for it today Silence ain't gold, I got something to say Our America's Ferguson, where's the love Fergie's band? We're not protective, but we'll start this ham. Ha! Controlling eyes, scam black and lock on the nondescript have not hammer cop race first class second back there's a snap judgment take a white and black doctor in the same khaki doctor nice pants who the cops gonna stop first the answer is obvious and that's why this plot hurts we need to organize and revise We're respected to achieve a need the average boycott with useful actions like some 63 enactment Tolerate police harassment Discipline our babies and get raided by the social service Same babies later in life get gunned down and shown as worthless There's provisions of lynchings, less inches for Tyrone The slave of my race of people is a historical side note We never heal from racism, stitches are becoming undone Is it dwelling in the past or not forgetting where we come from? I can't pretend these privileges stem simply from my own efforts Like any go-getter can benefit from what I take for granted Though there are instances I wish I was too ignorant to know better I can feel the way the field on which we play is landed 
As long as some carry on like skin pigments, how a soul's measured when running life's marathon, I'll have a blatant race advantage. If these peeps need me to spell it out in bold letters, things won't see H A N G E till we demand it. We stay trading these eight bars to break through your safeguards. Oh, no. Hate charge, police be leaving dark teens in graveyards. It ain't hard to see outlines in white despite their raised oh, arms. No. So we keep making art that's unafraid to play the race card. I thought I saw myself in a black kid once I wish the police would stop killing But then I realized that life for me is packed with lunch And young brothers have stopped dying Three-course dining, catered on fine china Gonna sleep to the tune of gunfire and Christ While my African-American friends eat Aunt Jemima Have you ever been afraid to open both of your eyes? So I'm playing the race card if you claim you don't take part Cause our entire society bears slavery's trademark If you're enjoying Book Speeds and Beyond, do us a favor. Go into the show notes of any episode, click on the iTunes logo to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. There was one form of racism that I think is like the most like noxious and insidious form of racism. It's something called adversive racism. <laughs> and I think after you explain it, I think the audience will understand how dangerous it is too. <laughs> Yeah, aversive racism is a form where it, it you have very deep disdain and contempt, uh, as anybody would who grows up in this culture and consumes media and listens to comments and, you know, uh, you can't avoid the message. But because it conflicts with your conscious identity as a progressive, open-minded person, um, you cannot acknowledge it. it it's... Mm. You have to suppress it. And so actually you can be the most defensive uh, when challenged, again, because your conscious identity um, uh, is rooted in the need to be seen as free of racism. And, you know, I can I can read a little piece if that would be useful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I love this little you remember the part I do with the text exchange with my friend. And oh, I? yeah. Um, so aversive racism is a manifestation of racism that well-intended people who see themselves as educated and progressive are more likely to exhibit it exists under the surface of consciousness because it conflicts with consciously held beliefs of racial equality and justice aversive racism is a subtle but insidious form Aversive racists enact racism in ways that allow them to maintain a positive Mm self-image Um, and so then I just shared this exchange I had with a friend about, you know, the classic good neighborhood versus bad neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. So now here's my live voice. Do you want me to, to read that piece or do you, or not? Oh, no. If, if you want to, I think it'll really lay it out for people. What, okay. however, the racism looks manifest. Yeah, and so kind of the big picture ways we do it are rationalizing racial segregation as unfortunate but necessary in order to access, quote, good schools. Rationalizing that our workplaces are virtually all white because, quote, people of color just don't apply. (laughs) Avoiding direct racial language and using racially coded terms such as urban, sketchy, underprivileged. Uh, denying that we have few cross-racial relationships by proclaiming how diverse our community or workplace is. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and attributing inequality between whites and people of color to causes other than racism. Mm, mm -hmm. So consider a conversation I had with a white friend. She was telling me about a white couple she knew who had just moved to New Orleans and bought a house for a mere $25,000. Of course, she immediately added, they also had to buy a gun. And Joan is afraid to leave the house. <laughs> I immediately knew they had bought a home in a black neighborhood. <laughs> this was a moment of white racial bonding between this couple who shared the story of racial danger and my friend, and then between my friend and me as she repeated the story. So my point here is that, that white people kind of reinforce and reinscribe that, those kind of us-them racist boundaries yeah. every day through these kind of narratives, right? Yeah. And that was so funny how you picked up on that subconsciously what she was talking about. I Just the, yeah. the different forms of communication versus, you know, the so-called races is, is just is just fascinating to me. Yeah. So um, through this tale, the four of us fortified familiar images of the horror of black space and drew boundaries between us and them without ever having to directly name race or openly express our disdain for black space. <laughs> Notice that the need for a gun is a key part of this story. It would not have the degree of social capital it holds if the emphasis were on the price of the house alone. Hmm. Rather, the story's emotional power rests on why a house would be that cheap, because it's in a black neighborhood where white people literally might not get out alive. <laughs> Yet while very negative and stereotypical representations of blacks were reinforced in that exchange, not naming race provided plausible deniability. In fact, in preparing to share this incident, I texted my friend and asked her the name of the city her friends had moved to. I want to make sure I got the story right. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to confirm my assumption that she was talking about a black neighborhood. I share the text exchange here. So this is literally, um, I'm going to be quoting now from my text exchange. So I write and say, hey, what city did you say your friends had bought a house in for 25000 And she responds, New Orleans. They say they live in a very bad neighborhood and they each have to have a gun to protect themselves. I would pay five cents for that neighborhood. And I reply, I assume it's a black neighborhood. And she says, yes, you get what you pay for. I'd rather pay 500000 and live somewhere where I wasn't afraid. And I reply, I wasn't asking because I want to live there. I'm writing about this in my book the way that white people talk about race without ever coming out and talking about race. <laughs> and she replies, I wouldn't want you to live there. It's too far away from me. Wow. So notice when I simply ask what city the house is in, she repeats the story about, you know, how dangerous and terrible it is. She's comfortable affirming that it's a black neighborhood. Right. But when I basically name <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about race she changes the narrative mm. immediately mm. um and you know readers or listeners may be asking themselves but what if it really is a dangerous neighborhood why is right. saying that? you know and and first of all white perceptions of crime and actual crime is absolutely cannot be trusted oh For white gosh. People, yeah the mere presence of a significant number of black people will automatically position it as dangerous in the white mind um but for me this conversation wasn't about some specific neighborhood and how dangerous it is, right? This conversation was about um, black versus white um, 
kind of positionality uh, and uh, reinforced fundamental beliefs about black people and kept those beliefs circulating uh, in, you know, everyday discourse. So, so let me ask you this, like knowing that you came out and showed her that, you know, you don't approve of what she's talking about. How does that friendship change? Because I know you talk a little about about white solidarity. How did, did, are you still friends with that 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 person? Okay, How does that work? I'm going to go ahead and admit something that um, I I didn't come out and say this was a family member. Mm, okay, yeah. <laughs> and family, I think anybody listening is like, oh, family member. Yep. I didn't want to name that. Um, but yeah, I I doubt, I wish I had just said family member and not what family member because I, I always think God readers were thinking, what kind of friends does she hang out with? Uh, <laughs> Because I probably would not have that person uh, as an ongoing friend if I couldn't challenge them. Because it's a family member and I have an ongoing relationship, um, then I do challenge her. And I think you can see in, you know, I don't want to be honest, not in that moment every time. Because family is probably the hardest dynamic, right? Because you have roles and you have baggage. And when she first told me that story, I didn't say anything. So that's my collusion, right? There's no way I can say that I didn't play a part just because I didn't say anything, right? right? I did play a part Mm -hmm. um, uh, by not saying anything. But I came back to it through that story. And with family, because I know my family really well, I will choose my moments Mm -hmm. because I know when they're open and when they're not. Um, so what you what would you say to the average person? Because I'm always hearing, you know, oh Uncle Bob said something at the barbecue. I just didn't want to, you know, cause any commotion. Like how, when, when should someone? Yeah, step up? you know, all of these are strategic decisions, right? Yeah. Um, I often think, look, there's no way I could get this right by everybody all the time. I'll try to get it as right as I can, as often as I can. Right, yeah. Um, so there's different strategies. Um, one is you could revisit it later, take Bob offline and just say, hey, you know, can I talk to you? You, you know, you said something at the dinner and I felt really unsettled by it, but I, it just take me a little while to kind of get clear. Can we revisit that? Like that actually is a nice approach, probably mm. not so defensive, mm-hmm. right? People probably would be like, oh, yeah, you, what, what, what was it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I could also say something at the table. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right? And it could be a real, come on, Uncle Bob, you know, mm. that's not well, that's racist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, odds are Uncle Bob is not going to go, you're right, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, or I could... Um, say something, but do it less directly. Right. So I will often approach it like this. Well, I can, I can relate to that sentiment, uncle Bob. I I have had that thought myself or that feeling myself, or I have told a joke like that myself. Right. Mm -hmm. So right Mm -hmm. there, I connect with him. And then I say something like, but in my work, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people who are on the other side of that joke. And come to see what it's like for them when they hear it. And I, I really just can't tell that joke anymore. Hmm. Um, and, you know, well, he, he might still be defensive, but how can you argue with, I just shared my own. Yeah, you know? yeah, uh, right, right. 
Right. I put a counter narrative into the room. If it was me that told the joke and somebody responded like that, I would never tell that joke again. Um, <laughs> have you have you have you lost a lot of friends doing the work <laughs> you, you're doing? Um, and let, let me just um, before I answer that, let me also say, sure. but not to say anything is to collude with Uncle Bob's racism. There's because you you allowed his racism to be completely. Um, unchallenged and unaccountable right. for, right? And so you played a part and you have to own that. And I can't live with that. So even if Uncle Bob doesn't like it, and he probably is not going to like it, I, I think we need to ask ourselves, why would calling in on racism ruin the dinner? <laughs> but letting racism fly, not ruin the dinner. Mm, right. You are like... You are not less racist than Uncle Bob by your silence. Mm -hmm. right? So, so, so when when I when I was reading White Fragility, I'm thinking it from my perspective as a black man and what that can set off. But now I'm starting to think about it from your perspective, the White Fragility that set off. That you you don't want to kind of counter that either. But like you said, if you're complicit with it, that's that just maintains the status quo. That that right there is the hardest thing to break. Yeah, you know, I mean, there there are consequences for breaking with white solidarity, and that's the term I use for that dynamic at the table. So white solidarity is the unspoken agreement between white people that will keep each other comfortable around our racism. I don't want Uncle Bob to feel bad, so I'm cringing at what he said, but I'm not going to say anything. Because Uncle right? Bob's a good person, too, right? That's yeah. kind of conflicting. Well, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I have to think about it as, you know, five people at that table just got reinforced in a white supremacist worldview. I mean, mm. that's what it, it's not. It's not benign or neutral. Just because you weren't at that table mm -hmm. doesn't mean something pernicious didn't happen for my consciousness and identity in that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, white people tend to think about race as only at play if people of color are present. Oh. And white space is teeming with race. It's it's every moment I spend in it, I'm being reinforced in many things, one of which is a worldview uh, that's deeply limited, right? Yeah. yeah. So there there are consequences. They are do they do not compare to the consequences you face, no. which you mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, loss of job, institutionalization, you know, criminalization, your life. Yes. But there but there are consequences. Um, as far as losing friends, I have a couple people who don't want to go to a movie with me <laughs> <laughs> because I quote unquote will ruin it for them. Um, but mostly I probably ended up in an echo chamber where the people that are in my life, um, this is what we talk about. And if you're going to hang out with me, you know, this is what you're going to talk about. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, yeah. But, um, um, I'm, I'm. I'm curious about the whole movie thing, but I, I don't want to go there, but I, I feel like maybe you, you really see all the subtleties in these movies now. I, it, you, it's probably laughable and, 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 and gets you angry at the same time, but uh, <laughs> that could take uh, us off on a different path. But I mean, I'm in simple sci-fi movies. I mean, everything. Oh, it's, it's oh, amazing. In my, um, my second book, which is called, what does it mean to be white? Mm -hmm. um, that one is actually a much thicker, um, much more in-depth version. Like, you know, there, I tried to make white fragility very accessible and very brief. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a lot of stuff I didn't take up, like intersections of class and race, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that I do in, my, in the other book. 
But I, I give an analysis of Shrek. Shrek 2? Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah. Right. Um, Shrek 2 was the largest grossing film worldwide wow. the year it came out. That wow. in itself blows my mind. Wow, I did not know that. But the racism in that film, if you watch it, oh my God, from a from a you know racially aware lens. Mm-hmm. So so I'll often ask a group of people, um, who plays Shrek? I'll ask you, who plays Shrek? The um, the white guy and yeah, Michael yeah. Myers. Yeah, Michael Myers. Who plays Fiona? Um, God, I forgot her name. I'm yeah, so bad Cameron Diaz. Yes. When I'm in a room, right, everybody calls. Most people know the answer. Mm-hmm. Who plays the donkey? Oh, Eddie Murphy. See, okay. Exactly. So on some <laughs> level, Eddie Murphy, we all know the donkey's black. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows he's mm-hmm. black. Mm-hmm. So then I show a close-up of the donkey. He has an afro. <laughs> yeah. um, donkeys don't have afros. <laughs> donkeys have manes. <laughs> but they freaking have an afro on this donkey. <laughs> And then I say, I think about the donkey. He's a moron. Yep. He has buck teeth. Mm-hmm. He shouts, um, you know, he harasses the women in the streets, mm-hmm. shouts off the back of the wagon. Um, and then the plot of Shrek 2 is that they're given a magic potion that turns them into their most beautiful selves. Oh, yeah. And so Shrek and Fiona turn into a white, you know, hetero couple. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the donkey turns into? Gosh, I can't. I can't remember. A white stallion. Oh my god! And his mane <laughs> is blonde, silky, and blonde. Yeah. And at one point, he flicks it. So uh, that it, you ever seen a like a oh white yeah girl yeah like hair? on the shampoo commercials and stuff yeah yes and I just and I say that move right there was not lost on any no. little no 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 little black girl missed when he had that silky mane. Mm-hmm. But when the potion wears off, he goes back to his buck tooth. You know, it, and these are, most people watching are not consciously thinking about this. But exactly. th- this is, this is the subliminal, relentless subtext. Exactly. And, and just and uh, you not noting, knowing that you were impacted by it has nothing to do with how you were impacted by it. Right. And I think what was what was telling is I have a young daughter. And when they came out with uh, the princess and the frog, at first mm. it was going to be called the frog princess. And even Ooh. in the movie, she's mostly a frog, you know, yep. and a lot of people are like, why are you guys mad at that? Are you serious? You know, <laughs> it's right. very, very subtle. Um. But I um j- just just to kind of kind of wrap it up a little bit because um, I me I feel like we could talk forever about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said yourself that uh, you'll never be completely free of racism or uh, finished with l- your learning, right? Um, yeah. And uh, there are, are some things that you can do or remember when you feel like your white fragility is going to surface. Can can you yeah. share that and how you overcome? your white fragility, and how others can do this. We'll be right back. Y'all are 
descendants of Cain People you hang, left them suspended in pain The pendulum swings, drink the venom and fangs You will be singed by the flames I am not timid and tame, I'm vivid, explain The truth tell they dig in my grave You live in a haze, I live in the US of A Where they tell us if you just behave Then you won't get shot by the cops Then you can rise to the top and buy from my shop Purchase a house on my block Service my mom and my pops, mow the lawn, wash my socks You don't put air in my lungs Bringing warfare with your guns cause you're scared of my tongue Used to instruct you from Timbuktu This ain't nothing new, it's been fuck you All poor people ain't good All rich people ain't bad To be good you'll be good Wash the blood from your hands Wash the blood from your hands Bismillah Fulani, Ashanti, Mandinka, Yoruba, and Walla. Yeah. You fucked over all us, caught us and brought us Away from the land of our mamas Murdered the sons, raped the daughters Millions of martyrs died in the fields of your fathers Nothing but justice will calm us Something's upon us Mentally we're still in bondage Now we're just slaves to the dollar Mamas are working, daddies are working Children are left vulnerable to perversion Hijabs and turbans don't make the person We represent peace, some of y'all just disturb it Must be assertive, must fight the urges you said yourself that uh, you'll never be completely free of racism or uh, finished with l- your learning, right? Um, yeah. And uh, there are, are some things that you can do or remember when you feel like your white fragility is going to surface. Can, can you yeah. share that, and how you overcome your white fragility and how yeah. others can do this? Right. I mean, I think white fragility can definitely be remedied. I, um, my racist socialization will always be with me. Um, uh, every moment that I try to push back on it, it's coming back at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I, white people can never be complacent uh, or, you know, confident that, you know, I'm done. I'm free of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was a great example, right? Go to the next movie and have everything read at a subliminal level. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the way I think about it is after, as a result of this work and, and I want to maybe close by saying, uh, it is so liberating and transformative to start from the premise that there's no way I could have avoided being socialized into this, you know, racist worldview, racist biases, racist patterns. You know, I just, there's no way I could avoid that. So you know, just start from that premise and stop defending, deflecting, denying, hoping you don't notice mm-hmm. and get to work trying to figure out what does it look like in your life and in your relationships. And I, I can say with confidence that I do less harm to people of color than I used to. <laughs> on occasion, Right. I mean, I share an example of some pretty egregious racism. I ran at a, a woman in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I do step in it, um, I I don't get defensive, and I have really really good repair skills, and so far I have been able to repair those moments. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure I don't recognize all of them, um, but when I do recognize it, or somebody brings it to my attention, I just clean it up, and it actually makes for deeper, more trusting relationships. Right. So many people of color have said to me, we do not expect you to be free of racism, right? Oh, We're yeah. not 
perfection any more than I expect, you know, my husband, the white guy to be free of sexism just because he loves me. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope that he's open to my um, guidance <laughs> um, and that he's, you know, less defensive than when I first met him and we can talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people of color have said to me again, we don't expect you to be free of this. But we're looking, what we're looking for is where can we go in those moments when it surfaces? Mm-hmm. Can I talk to you about it, right? Um, and if I can't talk to you about it, we probably, again, aren't going to have an authentic relationship. But if I can, I'm probably going to trust you more. Right? That, that's a really critical piece because most white people fear that we'll lose the relationship if you notice our racism. Right, right. Or, or, and, or, or, or uh, I'm sorry, or... Because they don't have many white people don't have many true black friends. So just the presence of talking to a black person, they don't want to lose that. I, I have that feeling in me, like, seriously. So, if yeah, but ch- I think yeah, if I respond well, if in this conversation I, I said something that caused you to kind of, ooh, right, right, that I didn't realize it, but it was just so rooted in a racist assumption, right? Mm-hmm. And you pointed that out, and I said, oh, my goodness, thank you so much. I, I, I hadn't realized that, but it's very clear to me now. Um, that won't happen again, and um, you'd probably be fine, I, I hope, right? I don't know. Would you be? <laughs> no, no, I, I would feel like, okay, um, at least she's not being defensive, and, yeah. you know, we can kind of move on. And maybe yeah. if it comes up again, I can always try to point it out. And Yes. And we can yes. move forward with that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, I've had many people of color say to me, um, well, the thing that you did that we're talking about right now, that happens all the time. But what rarely ever happens is what you're doing right now yeah. which is to repair it. Um, I think I, I think that anybody listening to me should see that I'm not racked with guilt, mm-hmm. even though I just said I have a deeply racist worldview yeah. and I have power. I think um, I think the one thing is though I, I I like what you're saying that you need to come out and and admit it and 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 want to work with it. The yeah. only the only thing I'm scared of is that becomes the trend and then there's really no true work in changing the system of it. You know, um, yeah. that that's that's that kind of I, I know that can, that kind of scares me in a sense. You know, because I'm I'm a husband. I can apologize all day. You know, but. I know I have to work at it at the same time. So I just hope that through that apology, you want to put action toward changing the system of racism. And, you know, yeah. thank you. And I hope that all, everyone listening and white people listening heard you say that. Right. Yeah. You sometimes this work just makes us better racists. Right. <laughs> right? It's right. that kind of, oh, I know I'm dominating. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I know I have white privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. And then carry on doing nothing different. Right. We know how to say the right things, um, but there's no change in, in in our action. And, you know, it's a like I said earlier, it's a really adaptive system. So we can't be complacent. Um, there'll be a time when white fragility becomes kind of mm, empty of its of its punch. The mm-hmm. way the term white privilege kind of seems empty of its yeah. punch mm-hmm. and we'll have to push in new ways. It, again, it's a it's a tricky um, yeah. adaptive system and we have to be on our toes. Right. There's a part in your book, what I, which I think is very significant. Um, 
is when you start talking about white women's tears, the power mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and anyone of color understands that. Like we can be in a situation and see that crying and we like we, that cannot be real right now. Like are you serious? <laughs> like and we know from a history that the 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 danger of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but if you can elaborate on on, on your perspective. Yeah, so let me just say that I, I do think there's a question why people have to ask ourselves, which is, why aren't our hearts breaking, hmm. right? Where's our rage? You know, where's our grief at the injustice of racism? Um, that That is, you know, that is work that needs to be done. But that grief and that those tears, they do impact other people. And so there's a time and a place to express them. Mm -hmm. And, um, when they're expressed in ways that, that basically rally all the resources back to the person trying is crying. So in other words, most of us have been conditioned to run to women in distress. Yes. Yeah. So you challenge me in a, in a work, in the workplace and I burst into tears and then everybody rushes to um, comfort me, oh, and you yeah. become a transgressor, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, or, or we're talking about racism, and I'm just so overcome by, you know, whatever, <sighs> that I start crying, and again, all the energy comes back to me. Mm. Um, so I think we have to just be really thoughtful about when and how we're crying and how it is affecting other people. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not conscious about it, it ends up, like I said, rallying the resources back to us and and causing you to be seen as a perpetrator, because, which is a dynamic. Because there's two levels of that. Because, you know, you, you hear of um, Permit Patty. She called the police. Yes. on. Now, she got on news and started crying. I don't think anyone believed that, right? Like, we we, you, we know you understand what white tears are about, right? That's, that's what I'm thinking. Like, you know what that's doing. And then there's the others that you know, they truly could be crying about the situation, but at the same time, like, this is nothing compared to what goes on all the time. Like, seriously, there's, the crying right now just needs to stop. I I understand that you're emotional, but you got to understand what that means right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, let's say we're in a, we're in a session, a workshop, and and you just share something deeply moving. Um, I, I have definitely been moved to tears in those situations. Um, but I, I, I try to do that very quietly to mm-hmm. myself, mm-hmm. you know, and if someone reaches over to comfort me, I make sure they know I'm fine. And I, I think it can also be validating for you to see that that story touched me, that I'm not just sitting there right. staring at you. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's how I'm crying. Do I start wailing in a way that, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do I start taking up a bunch of space? Right. If I feel like I'm not going to be able to do it quietly, like I feel so, you know, I leave the room, right? Mm-hmm. And go the hall. Mm-hmm. We just have to always be thinking, what is my position in this room right now? And what is the impact of the way I'm engaging? It, this is the same with silence. Mm. I wrote a piece called Nothing to Add, The Role of White Silence in Cross-Racial Discussions. That's dangerous. Yes. Yeah, because um, so many white people are like, oh, my God, uh, you know, we take up all the space in any other discussion. As soon as it's racism, (laughs) 
We let you take all the risks. Yeah. And um, that is not strategic engagement. That's mm -hmm. a default. You are defaulting to just one fixed mode. I'm not going to say anything in case I say the wrong thing. Um, and, you know, there are times when maybe not speaking is the right call. And other times when you need to come forward and show yourself. Yeah. And when white people are silent, and that's all they do, and they never show themselves uh, in conversations about race. You know, there's a history of harm, and, and uh, the yeah. assumption from people of color is that we're hostile. Mm -hmm. um, when I, if I was in a room with primarily white men, and I start sharing about sexism, mm. and they just look at me and respond with silence. Oh my God, that would feel so hostile to me after I just made myself vulnerable. Right. There's no way I'm assuming that they're supportive. Right. right. So I need to I need to be thinking like that, right? Like, well, maybe, you know, white people have been taking up a lot of space in this discussion. And even though I think what I have to say is so brilliant, how about I just hold back? Mm -hmm. Or I'm noticing that all the people of color are taking risks right now and no white person is meeting them halfway. I need to speak up. Right. Because right. we're, we're taught all the time, the place yeah. where you're going to grow the most is when you're uncomfortable, right? If you're that uncomfortable, yeah. please step up. Yeah. And I won't always get that determination right. But, but that's what I need to be grappling with in that room. What's my position in this room? And what is the best way to interrupt, you know, uh, the dynamics? And always talking or never talking is not strategic. Yeah. And it's the same with my tears, right? Uh, is it okay for, you know, for some tears to be here in the sense of, of bearing witness yeah. or are these tears starting to suck all the energy back to me? Yeah. Good point. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Dad, why are cops killing kids? Will they shoot us too? God forbid. It's time I had a talk with you. There'll be times that I won't be there to walk with you. So if I can't hold your hands, I'm going to talk you through. Now, America is great, but it's built on racism. Tradition, some switch it, but others, it stays in them. Pass from generation to generation to snub you. So cops cop attitudes and judges prejudge you. You see them as heroes. I'm cop the good guys. But man, woman, or child, we're threatening their eyes. How could they see kids and still pull their triggers? Because they don't see us as people. They see us as niggas. Dad, you said a bad word. Well, you said the N-word. That's not what I see when I look at mirrors or N-words. Won't see your brother's worth. They see his color first. And the darker your complexion mean, they gon' treat you worse. Melanin's a gift, not a curse. It'll protect us from the sun. But not the barrel of a gun when it bursts. Are all police bad? Honestly, I say no. Some are good, some are not. Which ones? How do I know? Listen really closely to my words. We're not the ones they're here to protect or to serve. What do you mean? I'll break it down even further. Prison is a business and cops are the workers. We are the merchandise. They are the merchants. Black and brown bodies for prison owners to purchase. To give you knowledge and self-love is my purpose. Because if you don't know what your worth is... Then you're worthless. It took a second for that cop to execute Tamir. But to investigate his murder... It took a year. Did they send him to jail? They found him innocent. Even though this video, millions of eyewitnesses were bound to lose the human race if all we see is differences. Why you so mad? You don't know how difficult this is. Imagine losing someone close to your heart and the killer blamed the victim, say that it was their fault. It don't matter if you're flagging, sagging, suited and booted and got the complexion for protection, they shooting. I don't say this to scare you, but to prepare you. I'd wait till you were older, but cops don't seem to care too. Respectability don't matter at all. But if police break the law, what do we call them? 
Going down the path that you're going, trying to uh, bring to the conscious level white supremacy and racism that uh, most white people are a part of, I'm trying to find out when writing your books, especially this book, did any have you changed in a way since you've written this book on any level? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the book is the kind of the culmination of 20 plus years doing this work. Um, so I can't say right now that I have changed. I'm getting some new insights, mm-hmm. which is always really great. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly about how young people express racism. Um, hmm. so I'm doing a lot of work in the tech industry, which is overall kind of under 30. Yeah. And this is the generation that was raised kind of the colorblind. Oh my God. Yeah. And they are, while they might progress, uh, excuse me, they might profess progressive values. They are completely unable to think critically about race. Yeah. Uh, and their own race. And they have no idea how much pain their coworkers of color are in every day. And they have no idea how hard their coworkers of color work to keep them comfortable mm-hmm. um, and to not upset them. And so they have no skills, right? Um, and That's so true. So it, yeah. When people say to me, oh, don't you think young people today are less racist? And my answer is no. No, no. Because I, I have I have a niece and and just and her friends just talking about, oh, we don't see color. I'm like, that is dangerous. I mean, that is really dangerous. Exactly. First of all, when do you say you don't see color? Only when you're talking to someone of color. That you, <laughs> a color so you need to tell them you don't see their color. Right. I mean, come on. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what what do you mainly want people to take away from this book? If you had to boil it down, what do, what do you want the reader to really take away? That piece again, that it is deeply liberating. It, it is deeply liberating to start from the premise that you have these patterns um, and start trying to uncover them and change them, and and that niceness. Uh, basically the default of our society and all of its institutions is the reproduction of racial inequality. That's what they do, mm-hmm. right? They've always done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, by every measure, we have racial inequality in this country. And in some measures, it's getting worse, not better. Right. And all the system depends on to keep reproducing that inequality is for white people to just be really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And carry on. Don't do anything different. Just be really nice. Smile at your, you know, co-workers uh, of color and go to lunch on occasion mm-hmm. and do nothing else. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying don't be nice. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. better than, you know, being mean. But <laughs> niceness is not courageous in mm-hmm. any way. It's not strategic. It won't get racism on the table. Right. It won't keep it on the table. It takes... It takes courage to break with white solidarity takes courage, yes. yeah. but to not do it is to collude. Mm-hmm. And so if you are going to choose to not break with white solidarity, then own that as an active choice to collude with white supremacy. Wow. 
<laughs> own that. Wow. I, I will often say to a group of people, you know you have the choice hmm. to, to, to just go, oh, isn't that an interesting discussion, book, workshop, um, and, and do nothing different. Um, and if you're going to make that choice, okay, but I want you to go home tonight, look at yourself right in the mirror, right in the eyes, and say, I choose to collude with white supremacy. <laughs> and then carry on, but let's do it with some honesty. <laughs> I like that there. I like that there, because you cannot <laughs> deny... Why? Let me get away with it. Can you believe I get away with that? <laughs> I know. I'm thinking about that all the time. I was, I'm thinking about how that must look when you're in a seminar and for your colleagues of color that are working with you, how does that dynamic work when white fragility is set off with your colleague versus set off with you? It's like that room, I would just like to have a seat in like, you know, one of those mirrors <laughs> that's one way and just, just watch like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you could not get away with saying that. Oh, I mean, yeah. This, this is part of how um, kind of that catch-22, that being white centers whiteness mm -hmm. in this work. And I can push way harder. And so I'm going to, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. the, I certainly have people of color feel uh, like, oh, my God, this is always at our expense. Mm -hmm. But the overwhelming feedback I get is, Oh my God, for just that one hour, it wasn't on me. Mm -hmm. For just that one hour, you held that burden, right? Yeah. Um, I have had people of color and black people in particular come up to me in tears and say, I have never in my life heard a white person admit what you just admitted. And you're doing it in a work environment too. That's, that's, yeah. that's even crazier. To <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, that keeps me going because I also get hate mail and mm. Breitbart just ran a story on me. Oh, and, boy. You know, we're in a real scary time. We are. We are. Uh, but um, I will keep doing my best. Well, I, I want to tell you to keep doing your best because I think part of the fight, I mean, the the we've been taught that the burden of racism has always been on black people. No, yep. no, 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 no it's time to really, if you really want to change this society, it's time for white people to understand that it was created for you and yes. that it's a burden on you because you're, you're, you're losing true friendships. You're losing out on the richness of, of, of the, of humanity because of this. So this book right here takes a little pressure off of me trying to explain it. And I'd be like, look, just read Dr. <laughs> Robin D'Angelo's book. She's white. And this is what, you know, I can't, you, you're not hearing me. So let's yeah. see, maybe you can hear it this way, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's I, like James Baldwin said, right? There's no Negro problem. There's only a white problem. Right. Right. I mean, who is your problem? It's us. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you so much for being on Books Beats Beyond. Um, we we truly appreciate you. Oh, right. thank you for the honor. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And you know what's cool is, by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, that will go toward the operations of this show. Also, click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. If you did this stuff already, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, 
Explore。